Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Mitchell about imperial nostalgia, how the British conquered themselves, out with Manchester University Press in 2021. Dr. Mitchell earned his doctorate at Queen Mary University of London in 2014. His dissertation was on the India Office Records and the Historiography of the Early Modern British Empire. In addition to Imperial Nostalgia, he is the co-author of Ruling the World, Freedom, Civilization, and Liberalism in in the 19th Century British Empire, with Alan Lester and Kate Bohm, out with Cambridge University Press in 2021. Peter Mitchell is currently an oral history and public engagement officer with the University of Manchester working on NHS, Voices of COVID-19, funded by the AHRC and in partnership with the British Library Oral History Archive. Dr. Mitchell, Peter, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks for having me. Um, Before we get into Imperial Nostalgia, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, about your intellectual trajectory and how you came to be the scholar that you are? Well, um, I'm uh, I'm I'm not a scholar, to be quite honest. Um, I'm not quite. I, see, I I I can see a lot of books behind you, so I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah, but notice none of them are in shelves; they're just in a structurally quite dodgy pile. So, um, I, I I mean I, you know, I I did a master's and a PhD at Queen Mary University of London uh, as a mature student. Actually, I started when I was twenty six, and um, all all of my three degrees are in we're done in schools of English. Um, you know, I, I was an English scholar. Um, that's all I've ever taught in a university. But um, yeah, I, I ended up working on the uh, Snapshots of Empire project with Arne Lester and Kate Bowen, um, which led to that book that you mentioned. And uh, I, yeah, I mean, that's, I'd, I'd already worked with my PhD in the kind of records of empire in 19th century imperialism. I'd ended up working with historians and geographers far more than with um, literary scholars, um, largely because I'd started as an early modernist uh, from my master's onwards. And it turns out that the the paper records uh, of the kind of the archives of administration in the 16th and 17th centuries belong to English literature as a discipline for some reason that's to do with disciplinary boundaries and power within institutions rather than anything else. Um, they belong to geography and history in the 19th century. Um, so I seem to kind of find myself between scholarly stools. Um, and yeah, I mean, after that, I, you know, this, this book happened. Uh, I've, I've also kind of worked in community history quite a bit. Like I was historian in residence at um, the Tottenham Hotspur Football Club Foundation for a little while. Um, I've worked for a small museum, the um, Ragged School Museum in the East End of London on kind of like histories of philanthropy and poverty in the 19th century metropolis. And yeah, I've done all sorts of little jobs, to be honest. Um, and and working as an oral historian. Yeah, yeah, the past which few is, years. Which is a, a long way from archive studies. It is. Um, I'm making the archive rather than using it. And I like oh, that. Yeah. I'm, I'm also working largely with people who aren't dead yet, which is new for me. Um, and and also really nice. It's uh, it, it's uh, I mean I'm, we can talk more about this later I think. But doing oral history um, as a collector, as an interviewer, as someone who's assembling an archive uh, based on contemporary events, but also uh, people's 
people's experience of a particular institution is, um, I mean, it's the best work I've ever done by far. I, I far prefer it to being in a library. And it has completely changed my ideas in ways, like I say, that we can discuss about about how people experience the past, about how remembrance happens, and also just about, you know, like how people experience the the state, the world, society, um, institutions, and their work. Well, maybe in a um, future century, you'll make an appearance in someone's book looking back on uh, building uh, building archives, as you uh, you mentioned a few archivists in this book. I, I absolutely will. I think in, in the, in, in the uh, sound collections of the British Library, if it's still standing. Um, so, so what was the inspiration for this uh, this book? As I understand it, um, you were working on oral history for the of, or excuse me, an oral history of the NHS when you started Imperial Nostalgia, correct? And and this is not exactly the same, same thing here. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, I mean, it wasn't really connected to my work. And this is why I kind of like why I'm going back on the idea that I'm that this book is a, a scholarly production, because I I mean, the genesis of this book was a, an opinion piece that I wrote for um, for an online literary magazine wasn't even paid for. Um, not that I mind that. Sorry, guys. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, so, so I kind of approached this as 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 a civilian or as a as, as a journalist. Um, who, with a background in stuff that was suddenly at stake in public life, in a way that it hadn't been quite so, quite so explicitly for quite a while. Um, and you know, I, I approached it as someone who'd kind of seen in my personal life how certain forms of radicalization were occurring um, in in Britain, um, especially, and and how that those forms of radicalization really drew on history, which is obviously like none of this is new stuff. I've not made any new discoveries here. This is all very, very obvious, very well documented stuff that plenty of people have written very good books about way before me. Um, but there is an immediacy to to experiencing it in real time and and knowing that there might be a there might be something useful in trying to delineate what it is you're seeing and trying to describe something accurately. Yeah, and it. I mean, this kind of leads me to this question of how do you um, characterize imperial nostalgia? Um, as I was trying to place it, it's uh, to me it seems a lot like um, John Pemberton's work. He was a um, anthropologist of Indonesia um, who wrote a book called On the Subject of Java, where he he laid out this concept of the history of the present. Um, that is to say, it's it's not necessarily a narrative of how we got here or got to where we are, but rather this sort of sustained reflection on how history shapes and interacts our current world, or or possibly we could say how people use history in various ways and conflicting ways for current political purposes. Is it is is that do I have that right? Is that how you, would you characterize yeah, um, yeah. nostalgia like that? <clears throat> I mean it's a it's 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 not it's not really a new kind of genre of or of, yeah. of writing. I mean, you know, like plenty of people like Paul Gilroy, yeah, Raphael Samuel. Yeah, um, Paul Gil Paul Gilroy features in in the book several times. Fairly, fairly heavily as his only right, yeah. probably not heavily yeah. heavily enough. Um, Patrick Wright, <laughs> you know, there's 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 a whole literature of of you know like of kind of uh, you know a vaguely kind of anthropological investigation of what the past means in contemporary society. So it was kind of I was trying to to partake in, in that kind of tradition. Um, but I, just coming back slightly to the oral history yeah. thing, what, yeah. what I like about that phrase, the history of the present, is, uh, is, is a sense I got doing oral history that I was talking to people 
about their pasts, but also about their engagement with their pasts. That I was that you're not just asking what happened to you, you're asking what does it mean that you recall something happening to you. Um, you're taking a record of someone living their past in a present. And one of the things that really that really took off with our project is in the middle of it, we, we were originally called NHS um the the story of our lives. And we were just um, kind of investigating for the 75th anniversary of of the NHS's founding in 1948. We were investigating people's relationship to the NHS as users and workers, which, you know, users takes in literally everyone in the country. Um, Mm -hmm. Most people in this country are born and die in the hands of the NHS. And in a way, it's everyone's most intimate relationship to the state. Um, And it's partly a kind of a national fetish or it's a slightly a national religion. Um, and it's a kind of great kind of ghostly presence in British life. That's also one of the biggest employers in the world and the kind of the employment center of many communities as, as well as being the place in which things happen to people, normally not good things. Um, and being able to switch from doing that kind of fine-grained investigation of people's stories about work, about their relationship to an institution and how they felt about it, to talking to the same people often at the time of that institution's greatest crisis and seeing how that deep textual sense of their and the institution's past changed or was mobilised or became something different in that crisis was uh, was a, you know the kind of opportunity that only comes up along once in a lifetime to uh, documentarians, I guess. But um, right, and, and, and for for future generations, we're we're talking about the COVID crisis. Yes, so of course. You you, yeah. you, 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 you would st- just to lay this out, you started this oral history of the NHS before COVID hit yeah, in twenty seventeen. In, in twenty seventeen, so two years into two and a half years into this project, the greatest crisis hits. Yeah. And yeah. so suddenly our, our project has a different name and our job is to um, is to document COVID day by day by talking to the people who are in the middle of it and also the people who are, like most of us aren't in the middle of it. Um, but they're often the same people and just seeing that kind of change um, and feeling the way in which history becomes reactivated was, was in a way a lot more fun than watching the way that imperial history got reactivated in the middle of last decade. Um, with the, you know, with the, the referendum of the union in 2014, with the, uh, with with Brexit and with the kind of the whole, um, that whole reactionary culture move that came along with the really kind of kicked in a couple of years into austerity after 2010. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, let, let's start talking about the book with um, laying out some of your key concepts. Um, uh, could you tell us how you understand and also use both the terms nostalgia, which are in the title, but also melancholy, which you, you lay out in the beginning. Um, and that's a, that echoes Paul Gilroy with his, um, his work. Is it, what, what is it? Is it post-colonial melancholy? What's the title? Yeah. Post-colonial melancholia. Yeah. Paul Gilroy's work. Yeah. Um, so what insights do these concepts offer for your analysis of contemporary Britain? Do you know what? I, I, uh, I'm, I'm well aware that they're fairly central to the book that I'm, I'm here talking to you about, but I hate both words with a passion. Um, you, put a, you put a nostalgia in the title. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I just can't help myself. Um, I, I sort of, like, obviously I don't hate those words, but I slightly think that they, 
They do obscure and flatten more than they illuminate sometimes. I mean, melancholia is... All, all, we'll, we'll start with that and get it out of the way because that's, that's the most painful one. Um, <laughs> you know, I, th- I, th- I think melancholia is, is obviously something that any any attempt to uh, actually put any definition on it ends up pattern reductive. Um, but how I how I use and probably misuse it in my book is, you know, to distinguish it as, as Freud originally does, but obviously he does it properly and, and means it, um, between, you know, between coping with loss and not coping with loss in a way that becomes essentially psychotic. Um, and I think that might have been a misstep on my part because I, I'm not sure there would be a healthy way of coping with the loss of empire because nothing about empire is healthy. I also, you know, <laughs> as, as, as I say, but clearly don't put into practice quite enough, I, I, I don't believe in, um, you know, uh, pathologizing or psychologizing uh, anything as complex as a nation or, yeah, yeah. or a state. And, you know, what we're talking about is structures of feelings, such as a feeling rather, which, you know, are necessarily nebulous, uh, necessarily more things all at once than you can put a finger on and also less than you can actually wrap up within a single word. But yeah, I mean, it was that distinction, that way of, uh, that way of saying, you know, like something has gone wrong here. This isn't sadness. This is, this is a form of psychosis. This is something where, you become obsessed with a missing object and you begin to arrange your life around it. I mean, there is a, a, not to get too personal, but there is a short anecdote in there about my experience of the death of my father when I was young. And my encounter with a form of mourning that was inward turned and destructive that structured the entire world and myself around this absence um, in a way that, couldn't really ever lead anywhere that could only lead inward and downward, if you like. Um, and realizing as a child that, um, and I actually remember the, the moment I realized that I'd been thinking that if I only worked hard enough and in the right way and put things in the right place and arranged the world around me, however I was supposed to do that as a nine-year-old, um, then in some sense I could make make the world whole again by, by recalling my dad to existence. And... Um, and obviously you can't do that. That's uh, that's crazy talk. Um, and I remember thinking, I have to stop thinking like this because I'll go mad if right. I don't. And I'll, I'll become frozen. And, you know, frozen is something you hear in the therapy room. But um, Michael D. Higgins uh, talking about the legacies of, say, of he was, well, I'd like to come back to this later, actually. Um, Michael D. Mm-hmm. Higgins has given a speech about Croke Park, the uh, massacre in 1920. And he says, you know, we have to stop our histories from becoming frozen. Frozen history is what traps us. And uh, and again, I, as wary as I am of, uh, of of drawing analogies between the therapy room and uh, and the state of the nation, like there's something in that. No, I think you just made a really persuasive argument for the use of melancholia to to describe the post imperial condition for the uh, the former imperial centers. Um, I mean, I, I, most of my work is in the French Empire, um, and yeah, this this <laughs> this is really applicable to France's um, you know collective uh, uh, psychosis regarding the loss of Algeria yeah. and inability to come to terms with well documented things like the systematic use of torture, like yeah. um, uh, white supremacist terrorism against the Algerian population. 
the you know things things that have come out in popular culture recently but like you know france goes through these these waves of every decade or so like oh my god what did we do in algeria and it's um what you know (laughs) and it's 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 like a collective psychosis but so obviously you know good scholarly historians shouldn't be trying to use pop psychology to uh well thank god i'm not one of those yeah, yeah. Trust me, it's no, it's no fun. Um, but it, uh, it, it's a. I think it's a really useful analogy, and I think it's really insightful. So, so what's the difference between melancholia or melancholy and um, nostalgia? Ah, Jesus. Um, well, I think again, nostalgia too is, um, is is a term that obscures more than it illuminates quite a lot of the time. Uh, nostalgia here is something that I. Because I'm, I'm, I was attempting in this book to, you know, to make some formulations and analogies that are quite, that are quite kind of simple. But as you try to explain something to someone in conversation, just like here, here's what I think is going on here. Here's, here's how to explain something that seems to have not, that, that seems unreasonable in some way. That seems to be, seems to have, whose motive force seems obscure. Um, and, and and for me in this book anyway, nostalgia is, is formulated as you know a relation to the past that that is ahistorical that denies proper historicity in a sense of how history is connected to the present properly by by well by formulating a kind of idea of the past that is melancholic and that it is that which you've lost. It's not locatable in time or space. It's always beyond the last temporal horizon. You can never put a date on it. It's always the old days. It's always when I was young and I'm of an age now, I'm 39, where I can go on Facebook and I can see people sharing memes about, remember when they used to deliver milk to the front door? Remember British Rail? And 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 seeing like, and the kids these days, they'd never understand. They're bloody spoiled. They don't even want to work like we did. And, you know, if if if, if you're my age now, you'll know that we've probably no generation on earth is is less good at work than ours. But, um, and, and the young people are definitely better than, than us. But... Nostalgia is this, is this way of kind of, it's not a relation to the past, it's a relation to the present. Yeah. Um, that creates a, a a fictional and a mythical and a, a kind of hallucinates uh, or fantasizes uh, a past that's no past at all. And yeah, it's 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 a essentially a melancholic construction, I think. Yeah. Um, you may be surprised to learn this, but everything you're saying has resonance what I've with what I've I've observed in the United States in the past five years, damn, really, um, you know this the whole idea of make America great again. Well, you know, when was this? When, and what, yeah, when, when and and what exactly was the metric for great? Um, yeah, when when and, and where? And then the most obvious question: um, for who? Yeah. Um, sure, the the father on Leave It to Beaver of the the nineteen fifties and that that idealized image of the heteronormative nuclear family, um, lower upper middle class, uh, what have you, white, 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 um, at the same time of um, you know some of the worst segregation in American history. I mean that that this this the 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 way in which this nostalgia distorts uh, for. Not not just in distorts not just for um, uh, a sort of psychological uh, purposes, but also for a political agenda. Yeah, um, and can be deployed. So, and and there's, yeah, there's, there's I, that I mean, sense so, always of a kind of of, of 
of, and, and it's and it's kind of basic reactionary affect of of like that that sense yeah. of asking for a kind of reconquista, like we're going to take yeah. back Spain from the Moors some someday, um, like you know, like the the kind of new kind of the new, like kind of nonsense little uh, astroturfed um, history history wars um, organization is called History Reclaimed, and the question is who from, who took it, when was history yours, and by 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 it being yours and not these people who now have it. What do you mean by that? What did that allow you to do? And when when you actually look at formulations like this, often when you try to narrow down, and you have to do it by elimination, you try to narrow down what it is specifically that's missed. Um, Nine times out of 10, it's embarrassingly obvious that what is missed, that one specific thing that you can actually say, yeah, I think it's this. It's... um, it's licensed to um, commit violence against people who don't look like you. <laughs> yeah. Not to be biased, yeah. but that's that's what yeah. it comes down to. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you ever listen to the Trash Future podcast? Uh, they were, they yeah, were, yeah, yeah, I do. They were making this exact point in a recent episode um, that, uh, you know, the, the state can only deliver so much. Um, but what it really seems to make people happy with is disciplining outlying groups yeah uh marginalized groups and that's that's something that uh you know f- failures to provide some basic services okay there we are but but yeah if we can make trans folks feel bad or if we can mar- further marginalize minorities that's that's yeah. something that people are sort of gravitating to i mean i mean don't but, get me into yeah. the kind of immense cultural and kind of psychic freight that that trans people and the issues around them are being made to bear in British culture at the minute. I'm, I'm well aware that we're kind of ahead of most other cultures on this. Like, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's something, well, Britain is leading the world in transphobia. So that's something. Well, I, there are, there are many states in the, in, uh, over here on the other side of the Atlantic that are doing a, a solid job. Let me tell yeah. you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, now we're going to talk about this at length, but can you quickly tell us um, how does empire, or at least the, a memory of empire, um, shape the British culture wars? Um, and I mean, these are these are the points of the book. But very quickly, <laughs> can we talk about how how does empire intersect with British whiteness and British masculinity, and then in the in the end, you bring in class as well. We'll we'll talk more at length. Mm. Um, but um, if you could just say a few words on you know what why empire. And then we'll we'll get into the various sections. Well, damn! I mean, that's that that's the whole book, really. Um, <laughs> how how does empire shape the British culture wars? Um, I I mean, I kind of to to be honest, I kind I kind of hate the phrase culture wars as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. all I want to do with Fair this enough. book, I spent two years writing, is is problematize and pull apart every single term that it kind of depends on for its existence. Um, <laughs> It's. I'm, I'm sure everyone feels like that after they've published a book. Uh, I. I mean, I mean, the memory of empire is something, and, and this is again where everyone should, you know, like bypass my book and go straight to Paul Gilroy. Um, yeah. Paul Gilroy understands it as, as an ongoing thing. You know, it's it's the kind of it's the substrate of uh, of our entire of, of our entire kind of like psychic uh, scene as 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 a society. Um, so everything becomes about it in a way. Um, stuff that you really wouldn't think, but how how does it shape it? I mean, what I study in this book is largely ways in which it it both shapes it and becomes a vehicle for it. So mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like empire is both the structuring, animating thing underneath 
so many of our kind of neuroses, but it's also uh, the terrain on which uh, plenty of people have decided to fight, uh, to to kind of like uh, explicitly fight wars about and, you know, like have, sorry, have cultural battles about things like race, gender, you know, and, and you know, the role of the state and human rights and whether people who don't look like you are human and uh, refugees and, and all that sort of stuff, um, which right. is why in my book, like I go into stuff like the, the channel uh, refugee crisis and, the role of fear and ally and the ways in which, you know, like every every kind of cultural imaginary that we have as a country kind of comes back to certain ideas about usness and themness, uh, certain ideas about race and belonging. Um, and ethno-nationalism and reactionary politics will always come back to this here in the same way that in some countries they'll always come back to uh, a certain relationship to a church or mm-hmm. a frontier mythology or or the sense that, you know, your country, you know, in, in, in Hungary, like uh, the, the number of lampposts you can see in, say, Hungary or Romania that have a sticker on them, like featuring a, a kind of map of the outline of the country as it used to be before the Treaty of Triano. Um, uh-huh. You know, like th- these are these are the obsessions of of yeah. reactionary politics. Uh, so, what I mean, what, what I wish I'd written about more is ways in which, say, re- um, imperial nostalgia and that kind of like uh, that psychosis about empire intersects with with current sexual politics around around trans people because it does, which mm-hmm. is completely insane. Mm-hmm. But that's how we're coded. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I was getting at is, you know, e- explain to we Americans, but you nailed it right there. Is it, so it's, you know, it, it's comparable to the the image of the West and the, and the cowboy and the frontier right. in, in American history, how we go back to that, this this um, imagined time of abundance and, and so forth that, that, you know, elides the ethnic cleansing and the genocide and so forth, and it elides this central issue of free real estate as being what made America possible. But that, but that's come to an end. Um, Let me re-answer that question uh, for, for American listeners um, by recommending that if they haven't done so already, they, they read Greg Grandin's uh, book, The End of the Myth, about the kind of, about the persistence, well, the, the history and the persistence of the frontier myth in American life and discourse and politics. Because, uh, I mean, the, the, that's the frontier myth in American life, as I understand it, and I'm speaking as a non-American and not an American studies guy, is basically the closest analogy to the British imperial myth. It's the thing that underlies everything else. It's um, it's what kind of it's what you use to excuse yourself. It's what you use to mythologize yourself. It's what you use to formulate. Um, good things as well as bad things. I mean, let's not do a balance sheet approach to national mythologies because that's just as reductive as anything else. <laughs> um, and it's also how you formulate things, things like race and class, and gender and masculinity. Uh, it's it's how it's the kind of it's not. Let's say it's not whiteness itself, but it's the materials out of which whiteness uh, builds itself in that specific context. Ooh, um, I like that. I like that. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And that's yeah. kind of what empire is for us. So in, in the second chapter of Imperial Nostalgia, you, uh, you follow Terence Ranger, mm-hmm. um, another one of the greats, um, and argue that in the late 19th century, a number of traditions are invented in Britain. 
Um, and you lay, you lay out some of the uses of nostalgia, um, as you put it. Um, what were these traditions? What purposes did they serve? And, and you know, why this time period? Why was there this invention of tradition project in late 19th, early 20th century? Well, um, I mean, th- this is a part of a book that's kind of addressed to a less scholarly audience. So, so it's, you know, yeah. um, apologies if you've heard this one before. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean... But- you, you tell the story really well, to be honest. It, <laughs> it, is, it is a delightful read, and it is something that I would happily share with both scholars and um, my other non-scholarly friends. Who, who well, 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 thank you. I'm glad to hear it. That's what I was aiming for. My mum likes it, that bit. She's, she's into that bit, yeah. So, some of the rest of the book, not so much, but she likes that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially, this is kind of what I did my PhD on, so a bit of that got recycled, yeah. frankly, yeah. as as always happens. Um I mean, what I was really interested in, this is what struck me when I started noticing the kind of the structures of uh, of reactionary nostalgia around the empire when it first started, really, really like um, causing public trouble uh, last decade when I started noticing it because I'm white and I haven't had to live with it for the, my entire life, um, is that I'd been aware of how many of the imperial, many of the, many of the kind of imaginaries of empire with which you're, you you kind of like sucking with your mother's milk as a British person, um, had been kind of really consciously constructed with great effort and quite a lot of directed energy in the late 19th century um, in order to create, uh, well, a nationwide elite and popular um, culture of imperialism. Because, you know, and, and this is a gross simplification, so, you know, apologies in advance to all actual historians. But in in the late nineteenth century, we, we, you know, we forgive you. We forgive you. Britain was, you know, Britain was in a constant ruling crisis. There were depressions. Um, empire was really kind of reaching its territorial extent. It was, it, it had always been an anxious undertaking, but it was especially anxious uh, given in the European competition, given the kind of the trauma of the eighteen fifty seven uprising in uh, in mm-hmm. India, and other uprisings in um, South Africa and the various Afghan wars, and. You know, there was there was a sense that um, that a mythology was lacking in a way, and this is when you start to see rather later than although this is this isn't totally divorced in time, slightly later than most European states start making the mythologies of nationalism that kind of come out of and around eighteen forty eight and the revolutions then, and the formation of um, of national archives and museums, you know, all that basic Benedict Anderson stuff about how a state constitutes itself. Um, we we started creating rituals. We made um, we made Queen Victoria Empress of India. Uh, we invented the Durbar, which is kind of amazing. Kind of we kind of assimilated bits of uh, of 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 Mughal kind of uh, ruling culture and kind of made a kind of whole pageantry of empire. We invented kind of imperial uh, medals to give people on campaign. We you know redefined yeah. re- redefined people's uniforms. We built the Foreign and Colonial Office in in London, which if you ever get the chance to go inside, is just this. It's it's where well it's the Foreign Foreign Colonial sorry it's now the Foreign Commonwealth and Development. Office FCTO, um, which is you know where we where we still run our relations with the world from, and it's this incredible, utterly bonkers, completely tasteless um, kitsch wedding cake 
of kind of stolen imperial imagery. There's like there's statues representing the different rivers of India, like but in a kind of Greek way. And you know, this is a time when British uh, when when we made a historiography of our own imperial presence, which we hadn't really done until then. We'd uh, we'd narratorialized uh, certain things that happened in India in the 18th century. The British the British East India Company had had historiographers. Um, but we never kind of made a popular history of empire. And this is when we start seeing that emerge. Um, and a lot of it I found was always already melancholic, always already based on a sense that something had died or that some great days were over. You can read this in Kipling, you know, full, full is kind of, and I love Kipling. I think, I think he's a fantastic writer who's, uh, who's to be fought with, but not dismissed. Um, he, you know, he, he, like, if you read Recessional by him, he has this kind of sense of, of, of the elegiac, kind of elegiac empire, you know what I mean? Like, it's always, there's always, the sun is always setting on the British Empire. The British Empire is an endless sunset, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, this is when we kind of really started to invent the kind of imperial teleologies, like a sense that an empire was leading to a particular kind of great realisation of an ideal, which was often kind of not unlike the Anglosphere that we imagine now. It was a kind of like a confederation of whiteness that would kind of rule the world. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, like, I, I mean, these these, these mythologies, I found a, a shot through with sadness and various kinds of, uh, of, 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 of kind of like, masculine longing uh and and tragedy like this is when we start inventing the kind of great imperialist heroes like richard burton and um and lawrence of arabia this is this is when like young men from uh, from quad and chapel start going out to civilize the natives and die terrible self self uh sacrificing deaths in their in in tropical hell you know um it's uh, and and this is when we invented the pageantry of empire. And like I say, it's yeah. it's it's often sad and melancholic. And I found that really fantastic. I, f- I found it really fascinating that to invent to invent a kind of an authorized history, it has to be something mournable. Um, mm, mournable, yeah, interesting. Because I mean, I, I I you know looking at these things, I haven't quite taken it to that level. But because uh, what I'm always so struck with is the, um, I guess we call it imperial cosplay. You know, invention yeah. in the Drabar, like go, these incredible ceremonies using, you know, elements of the Mughal Empire and 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 things just thrown together in this mishmash of culture. Yeah, and and, and the thing is that yeah. we've naturalized that. Like, yes, naturalized, we didn't really right. take at the it's time because these, these now, things right? never yeah. quite take at the time, even in the late nineteenth yeah. century, which is one of the most fascinating, fast-moving like times in history. Like, yeah. you know, like people didn't necessarily buy into it. It was always a bit like, "What, Jesus? That, that's a bit cringe," um, and, and it was all, and it was always heavily contested. Something which, again, we've completely forgotten about the contestation of these things. The way there was, there were always different um, cultures, even within imperialism, that were always at war with themselves and um, and each other. And you know, now we think, "Oh, yeah, the empire," and we have this kind of vocabulary of images in the same way that Americans do about the frontier, which is a certain lone cowboy. What the street of a of a cowboy town looks like if you're going to do guns at high noon down it, you know, like the yeah. the, the honky tonk piano in the whorehouse. And um, you know, we have those images about about certain kinds of uniforms and certain kinds of landscapes and certain kinds of men and certain kinds of adventures. And we we invented it all. It's we've naturalized it, but. 
but it had to be made. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and what that intersects with, and this will lead to my next next question, uh, what that intersects with in the American example are the statues about the Civil War. And exactly. so, so many of those statues those Confederate statues are not put up just after the Civil War. They're put up a generation or two later in the early 20th century at the height of Jim Crow as uh, a way to, to, you know, give this, this public pedagogy about white supremacy. Yeah. And they're, you know, it, from the perspective of the past few years, many people thought those statues went back to the time in question. And they weren't themselves a nostalgic project. So, I guess I guess this this leads to this next question about um, uh, statue wars. Um, right. You know, as as a as a theater in the culture war uh, statue battles or whatever you want to call it. Um, um, and again, that that intersects with the the American example. So, could you give us a few examples of the British version of the statue wars? You have the wonderful quote from the. Uh, the Colson statue, which says uh, sploosh, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I don't think anyone actually said that, but... Uh, <laughs> well, but the statue I'd, did. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd put it on a T-shirt. Um, I, the, the, thing, the thing with the statues thing is, yeah, I mean, my, my whole point about, about when I talk about the past, and that's why I do a whole chapter about the past, is that, uh, is that one of the tricks of nostalgic, of the nostalgic view, is to give the sense that the past didn't have a past that everyone in history knew who they were. No no one back in the past was anxious about the past. That's one of its major fantasies. That's one of the main comforts of imagining yourself back in back in a nostalgic past is you don't have to worry about statues. You don't have to worry about co- collective guilt because it doesn't exist. Historicity has been abolished. Um, and, you know, when it became so hard over the past, you know, since uh, since June 2020 to... to just to tell people who were discussing Edward Colston's statue that it went up in 1898. Um, and we, when did he live? Sorry? When did he, when he live? live? 17th century. Right. 17th and 18th. God, I actually don't know his date, and I should. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, Ed, just, just to explain, Ed, Edward Colston was the kind of, was our main kind of Robert E. Lee moment and we'd never really brought down statues before in this country it's not something we did every so often someone puts up a statue to margaret thatcher and someone else comes along in the middle of the night and knocks the head off it mm-hmm. uh in ireland there's a tradition of things like blowing up nelson's column but um yeah in in, in britain we just never really got around to it and yeah so the kind of the, the blm movement as it manifested over here kind of and ended up throwing this this statue in in the river and this is something that had been building for for years uh for many many years many things in bristol are named after colston uh he was a slave trader and he was one of the kind of pioneers of bristol slave trade and it was it was a really instrumental city in that slave trade you know that's yeah bristol is it the main uh it was, it was, yeah, yeah, one, one in the, Britain, yeah, yeah. as I understand. I, I don't, well, I mean, it kind of, it was, it was kind of the first big slave trade center yeah, yeah, in Britain. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm not a historian of this stuff. Um, but just for for those un, unversed in in yeah. the history of the Atlantic world, it's important to note that that um, slavery as a project is not just happening in West Africa in the Caribbean. That <laughs> there's a very important role played in. Um, in the metropole, but I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, so, Edward, loads of things in Bristol have been named after Edward Colston for years. Uh, Colston Hall is one of the big venues. And for many years, like, 
Bristol's biggest mu- musical export, Ma- Massive Attack, refused to play Colson Hall until it was renamed. Mm. And what actually happened was, you know, all this, he was a great benefactor of the city with the money he made from trafficking in human beings. Um, but this all happens in the late 19th century, um, which is long after he died. Uh you know, the statue went up in 1898. Even at at the time, there was quite serious civic resistance uh, to naming things after Colson and putting up statues to Colson. Like, like Bristolians liked being Bristolians, but they didn't want to be associated with the stuff that had made it rich. Um, So, you know, like that statue has never not been contested. But when it was thrown into the river, like um, as as happened in the States, um, the discourse became about, well, you're erasing history. And the question you have to ask to that is whose history um, and which history and history from when? And actually, it's it's the history of the late 19th century trying to valorise a, a 17th and 18th century slave trader that you're raising. And that's that's a contestation between different histories of a, of a time that, again, is a different time. Sorry, I'm not being very clear there. But it's the American analog is, again, putting up statues to the Confederacy yeah. in the 19-teens and 20s. Yeah, during like yeah, and then again in the nineteen sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, which is, and, 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 once you, you explain know, that to people, it's fairly clear. Uh, but this is where one of the problems of, of the statue thing over here is it doesn't. The statue thing has, to some extent, been imported from America, um, where I think it's quite. E- I'm not going to say it's easy to explain to people because you're American. And I'm sure, sure you know it's not. Um, but it's quite easy to ex- when I want to explain the statue issue over here to someone over here, uh, I go to I go to the American example because it is clearer, it's less complex, it's easier to say. Okay, so you know how the Civil War was. Let's just say about slavery and leave it at that. But the Civil War ended up by freeing the slaves, and when you commemorate, say, Robert E. Lee and Confederate generals you're commemorating the side that was pro-slavery. And um, and also when you say those statues were put up during Jim Crow in the first reaction to Reconstruction, and they were put up in the 1960s as a reaction to the civil rights movement to say, don't get uppity, we're still in charge. When you explain that to British people, they're like, oh, Jesus Christ, well, down. <laughs> what the hell? Why are they leaving them up? Why are they fighting about it? Exactly. But it's less clear in Britain, like you know, like because yeah. we don't we in in America you have, I know it's contested in in fact, but in theory you have a kind of national consensus that say Martin Luther King was good and civil rights were were the right thing to do, and that's we don't have that about the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We, I mean, we obviously don't at all, otherwise I wouldn't have had to write this book. But um, we, our, our relations with the past are more complex. There's no kind of, there is a late 19th century, early 20th century statue mania, um, but it's not so nakedly in response to something that's obviously on the side of the angels. It's, it's a more kind of, it's a more complex part of, more complex and more kind of popular kind of part of the creation of a national historical myth so you know the circumstances aren't as clear and you know it's not you you can't really say even even the people who are on the far edge of of the reactionary right in the united states of whom you have many would not be rude about mlk um they have to say 
MLK would have said, invite this fascist to your university and give him a hug and then and then ask him to speak and then debate him because MLK was a peaceful man. So, well, he wouldn't have done that. But, you know, like there was no way that you can actually like kind of say what you mean about the civil rights movement within, you know, certain parameters of discourse. Right. And over right. here, like it's fairly unusual to uh, to not be at least on the fence about the empire. Right. Like there's no, like, there's no, like there's no piety to which you can appeal to say maybe don't commemorate a slave trader. Um, right, right. But I think you know well, we've we've got some good commentators on this, and I think the best thing we've yeah. written so far is that David Olsoga pointed out that the act of putting down a statue isn't erasing history; it's it's a historical act. It's an act of history. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Like you, no one will ever forget David um, David Colston. No, not David Colston. Edward Colston. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that leads into one of the next uh, discussions in your book when you get into the uh, the university campus as a, th- a theater in the culture war and uh, the figure of uh, Nigel Bigger. Um, who, who, is, who is he and um, why does he play such a prominent role in your book, uh, even though you're audibly sign? And um, why does this what, why why is this, is this theologian playing a war playing a role in um, history wars? Well, I, I kind of, in in a sense, I I'd, I'd like to pull the focus away from Nigel Bigger as a person. Um, <laughs> what, what I'm what because what I'm trying to do here is is to read him as a symptom of something. Like he he's become a yeah. kind of in a in a mild sort of way, he's become a figurehead of of reactionary discourse about the empire in the British broadsheet press, and that's you know when you when you put it like that that that's not a big thing. Um, uh, but I think he's a really good case study uh, for thinking through how these campaigns work, for thinking through precisely how imperial memory and history gets mobilised within culture wars, because he himself articulates certain fantasies about certain kinds of whiteness and masculinity and also about right. higher education, especially in the university in the place of Oxford and Cambridge in our universities. Cause he's a kind of, he's a kind of cartoon of an austere priestly old professor and he is literally a priest. Well, oh, no, he's from, from central casting for Oxford Dawn, right? I mean, he, he yeah. just drips you know, that Oxbridge privilege and near edition and you can't imagine him without a glass of port by a claret by a fire or whatever they yeah I mean, whatever I mean, they he's do. a kind of i mean the thing is again i'm not interested in the guy <laughs> i don't yeah, care yeah, what he thinks enough, about anything but i'm interested in why the people who produce this stuff the people who commission yeah. it and publish it find him yeah. so useful because of the fantasies he activates and the things that he's able to articulate from a certain speaker position and how useful that is so you know he's he's kind of perfect as as a figurehead because he has this kind of dry old stick Oxford donishness. Um, he also you know he's he's a preaching reverence. He's a he's a theologian, yeah. and right. he's also yeah. got that kind of lowland Scots Protestantism, which intersects with his other political interests, which are like a furious defence of the Union, and um, and a furious defence of the military, and uh, and and recently he's got really involved in just being very, very concerned about policing gender. Um, but this this all kind of goes together in a wonderful kind of... Uh, nos- it's, 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 a fig- it's an object of nostalgic longing itself. And it speaks also speaks to the fantasies about Oxford and Cambridge as yeah. the repositories of a certain kind of 
whiteness and a certain kind of cultural authority, um, which, you know, does, does no service to the universities themselves, which are, you know, complicated places, but they're mostly just universities. Um, so, so there's that, there's the kind of fantasies he mobilizes, but also the way he puts things like he's, he's the best single index I can think of for, for kind of encapsulating all the ways that discussion apparently or nominally about imperial history is mobilized to me to, to produce certain affects or mobilize certain affects about race and about class and, and about, uh, about the idea of the idea of white terror of, uh, of racial change and racial infiltration. I mean, he's, he's one of the board members of history reclaimed, which again, it's like, who are you reclaiming it from? And you know, he's always his, his, uh, just, just to go into his, his history a little bit. And, and, and just, just one second. And by white terror, you mean whites terrified of change, not, yeah. not, not white terror in the counter-revolutionary way, but, but, no, but sorry, maybe, no, no. maybe no. White, 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 white anxiety, white, yeah. um, yeah, yeah. White, whites being terrified of, yeah. Great replacement theory and all that garbage. Right? Well, yeah, and that's that's exactly yeah. where it leads. And, yeah. and and I'm sure we can talk about this more. But but so much of the kind of so much of the discourse around universities as a battlefield in the culture wars at the minute is essentially about infiltration. It's about uh, the treason of the clerks. Uh, it's about um, liberal elites selling out culture because they inherent because they hate it and consciously uh, trying to import things that are not like us, things that are not white, people that are not white into, you know, into the very kind of, in the very kind of like center, the nerve centers of our culture and history. I mean, you know, the, the way that the, the way that the newspapers in which uh, Nigel Bigger normally reports, which are like Times, The Telegraph, The Spectator, uh, the ways in which they report on efforts to widen participation in higher education especially when it's especially when it's non-white students going to oxbridge especially when it's black students going to oxbridge they you know they'll report and say isn't it nice that this black student is going to oxford but what they're doing is drawing their readers attention to the fact that oxford's letting certain kinds of people in now and that it's the uh it's those treasonous uh self self-hating race traitors who are um who are enabling it um right. and and there's there's real world consequences to the editorials of uh nigel bigger and the others i mean the camp the the the, the, the is it the daily telegraph and others have provoked campaigns of um ter- well of well of what i would call white terror yeah, of um yeah. of scholars of of color yeah i mean you know like one of one of Biggest primary antagonists when he kind of broke on the scene in uh, 2017, 18 was 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 a Cambridge academic. He's a, he's a wonderful historian, uh, Pierre Gopal, and you know she she found herself in the Daily Mail like twice a week for a little while. Yeah. They they reported that she had expressed uh, expressed an enthusiasm on Twitter for race war against whites. Um, they printed her picture a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And they, you know, they were clearly hanging around watching her every move and finding ways to advertise where she worked and where she was and what she did and precisely why you should, uh, you should want to commit violence against her, essentially. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's fairly obvious where all this is leading. 
and and I have to admit, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised that there have not been more acts of violence against academics, given mm-hmm. given the strength of this uh, these campaigns. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it 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 leads to it does lead to real world consequences. But but as I'm saying, what what it's at heart and anxiety about is is that kind of that white anxiety about being supplanted and replaced. It's the, you know, the, the barbarians that, have reached a citadel. Right. And, and losing this culture that they worked so hard to invent just a century ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's fascinating. Um, um, one of your other concepts that I really um, uh, found really enjoyable is this idea of the Imperial Wonder Boy. Uh, tell us about your reading of Rory Stewart and what he represents and maybe what he thinks he represents. Um, you know, Americans probably less familiar with uh with this figure um but what does um you know what what does he resonate with in british history um who are his precedents and his fellow travelers um pardon the pun okay well uh it's oh god <laughs> how to explain rory stewart to uh, to an american audience in, in, he's uh, in, in in two minutes <laughs> he's a, he's a kind of floppy james bond um he's he's kind of he's, he's a member of the kind of british uh post-colonial elite he was kind of brought up aboard by a dad who his, his dad could have been the um you know chief of mi6 at one point and um, he may have been a spy himself he likes to drop hints about it but you know he was he went to eton uh he was briefly tutor to young william and harry for the royal family uh he was in the black watch which is one of our most kind of colonially famous um, scottish regiments for a little while um he went to oxford um and you know he ha- he's had this kind of globe globe trotting career where he works for NGOs. Uh, he's you know he's often in the kind of wake of post imperial wars like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, he also loves to walk, and you know he has this image of himself as a kind of as this intrepid kind of traveller in the kind of colonial field. He walked across Afghanistan. Well, he walked across the Pamirs. Um, I think like two weeks after the Taliban fell in 2001, 2002. And he wrote his first travel book about it, which is which is really popular in America, actually, partly because it's got this, I, I'm guessing because it's so exotic as this kind of this, this British posh public school imperial adventurer in a very familiar mold. Uh, but also, you know, he writes in these kind of beautifully kind of hewn granitic kind of... Um, Hemingway-esque sentences about how how tragic it is when his dog dies, but like the people he kind of meets are disgusting. You know, also he he just accidentally on his way finds an ancient city that's that's been completely lost to time, and obviously the the natives didn't know it was there, but or, or they kind of gave him a little they gave him a little hint that it might be there, and he's just upended all of Western archaeology about the Pamirs. Um, He's, you know, he was, he was an MP and he's in the Conservative Party and he's, he's, he's a really interesting figure and a really smart guy and kind of a, a fascinating post-colonial dilettante. Um, but again, I'm not really interested in the person who I'm sure is fine. Well, he did, right. he did vote to keep right. out child <laughs> refugees, but, you know, um, he, you know, he, he's, kind, he's kind of part of this fantastic lineage of, of kind of of Victorian and imperial adventures that goes back to Richard Burton, the translator of the Imperial, uh, of, of the um, Thousand One Nights. It goes mm-hmm. through Lawrence of Arabia and it's really present mm-hmm. in, in kind of, in the adventure fiction of say, John Buchan. He becomes James Bond after the Second World War in a way, like James Bond is one of the directions this figure goes in. The other direction the figure goes in is, is the, the spies of John le Carré 
um, Bill Hayden, the uh, the guy who's the traitor in John Le Carre, you know, he's this kind of epigony of the British establishment who who had a heroic war and kind of fought with SOE in the jungle or whatever, and then turns out all along to have um, to have abandoned the the empire that he fought like a lion for and to to not be the person he was at all anymore. So you can see the Imperial Wonder Boy, this kind of genre that I've just kind of that I've literally just yanked out of my brain in a moment of inspiration. Sorry, I wasn't being very serious. Um, yeah. You can see this category kind of becoming a, a figure of anxiety and loss as well. And what, what I think Roy Stewart is about, and again, not the person, Roy Stewart, let's read him as a cultural text. Um, exactly. Yeah. Is, yeah. you know, he's, he's, a, he's a collection of gestures and motifs kind of arranged around the kind of aching void of, of the absent empire. You know what I mean? He's that kind of melancholic uh, complex that you know it has the center has gone out of its world but it can, it, it can only show up fragments against its wounds if that makes sense yeah it, it's just such a throwback to the, the the period i study the late 19th early 20th century in the imperial world and and this guy's doing this you know i, I said it before imperial cosplay and yeah. um and that this i mean this i i thought that he was such a great example for your for your overall argument of the way in which empire just infects every aspect of uh, Britishness today. So what's amazing is that he's been picked up by the kind of liberal center in this country as kind of one of the good Mm -hmm. Tories. It's like, we can't trust labor because they're communists now. And obviously the, uh, (laughs) the right wing of the Tory party are full Auburnite lunatics and did Brexit. So that's bad. But Roy Stewart, he seems like a sensible man who's born, Born to, born to, you know, sensibly run things, you know, like he's, he's the ultimate kind of like the good vice, viceroy or, or district commissioner in Nigeria, you know, like he's got, he's got a firm hand with the natives. He's, uh, he's wonderfully posh. He knows ancient Greek, you know, like you can really entrust yourself to this kind of man. And I mean, that speaks to a really deep, deep vein of forelock tugging and boot bootlicking in, in British culture, I think, but, uh, and, and, but and also, he's, you know, he's, he's masculine AF, right? I mean, he, that, and I think that the masculinity is really important through all of this. In, in a weird way though, he's not though, he's got the kind of like slight girlishness or kind of boyishness yeah. of, of that kind of, there's a certain, a certain ruling class colonial style suggestion of queerness, you know, but, like. But, the, but, yeah, but yeah, but see, I, that, I mean, I see that still working with this conception of masculine. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, and and um, and it's, it's, it's a way of being so masculine and so masterful because it's all a performance of mastery. But at a certain level of mastery, you don't need to act like a thug. You can you can be as limp-wristed as you like, <laughs> and, um, which, which is, because which you own is, everything. Yeah, which is also Richard Burton and and T. E. Lawrence. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, that, um, and, but, but, and that's kind of part of the kind of part of the glamour and the kind of suggested jouissance of what they do is that they're able to go in contact with with the natives and not become corrupted, although they might in a kind of fascinating way, you know. Um, but it's all it's all tourism because in the end they they are literally born to rule the world. Right. So um, I, I asked you b- before we started recording, and um, if you'd ever watched the original Magnum PI, the original Tom Selleck version, because there's a character named Hig- named Higgins, right. who's British, and he plays the, an Imperial Wonder Boy. He's he's older than Magnum and and his buddies, and um, and, and by the way, Magnum PI is all just Casablanca uh, recast. 
okay. uh, with um, Tom Selk as Humphrey Bogart. But there's this British character um, and talks about his service in Burma. And they're, they're living in Hawaii, right? So it's tropical. And he's always, um, he was at service in Burma and he was a British intelligence officer. And um, <laughs> he walks around in khakis. Um, I mean, this this was all shot when um, I was... I, junior high and high school in, in Honolulu and nobody dressed like that at that time. Right. But he has this bizarre um, Imperial British Imperial reference in this very American show. Um, and it um, it's a really strange insertion into, into Magna PI, which was one of the most popular shows in the, in the 1980s on primetime television. Um, and it, I, I bring this up um, uh, because it, I wonder if you have any thoughts on the transatlantic appeal of the Imperial Wonder Boy or the British Empire. I mean, you mentioned Bond, and we got a new Bond film coming out. And yeah. um, I mean, what's any thoughts on how this um, the, this exports to uh, the former colonies in the North America? The thing is, you look at something like James Bond or Rory Stewart, and like it's impossible to imagine it being anything other than delightful to other countries. I mean, we love it. We can't get enough of it. Um, I, I mean, the thing is, I mean, I could kind of turn that around and point out how many movie villains uh, have ever been Englishmen with a certain kind of officer class colonial accent. Mm. Um, there's, you know, there's, I think they appeal to America's uh, self-conception as a, as a post-colonial uh, society that, you know, emancipated itself from the empire. It's like, look at these ridiculous red coats. Um, these, what is it, lobster backs? Yeah, like, look look at these guys in their trick-on hats. Um, they're so ridiculous with their snuff boxes. But, um, and, and it's also, you know, I, I think there's possibly a little record of the kind of history of, of inter-imperial competition in, in the 19th century there. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, these figures are delightful and they are one thing that makes them delightful is that they are a figure of a bit like Nazis. They're a figure of world domination. That's also obsolete and ridiculous. Um, but, but, which makes but, but them useful. For fiction. Like, like Nazis have a certain seductiveness in their style oh, and, yeah. their, and their naughtiness. And if you don't think too hard about the, the Nazi villains or what the British uh, Empire is doing in in Bengal or what have you, you can. It's a it's a fun sort of naughty bad guy. It's it's transgressive too. Yeah, right. You um, you watch saying glorious bastards and like Christoph Waltz uh-huh. and that is is is, is kind of Nazi yeah. officer, but he's played kind of in the way that often British imperialist posh villains are played as kind of yeah. a bit yeah. camp and a bit giggling. Yeah. He's like, what shall I do now? And and he's <laughs> and he's intensely likable in it in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's that. It it is the ridiculousness. Uh, I, I rather suspect that if the British Empire was still at its height, it wouldn't be such an appealing character. Um, mm. mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, it's it, it really structures how people think, how non English people think about Englishness. I mean, I've I've spent I've spent time in Russia, and people there are immense immense Anglophiles. But the England, the England they love is Stephen Fry punting tea, the Union flag, the House of Commons, and uh, riding horses. You know, there's a, they're, they're, they're attached to this thing that is intimately bound up with with class and empire, and with with the period at which we not only were in charge of everything, but were very diligently making myths about ourselves in order to maintain that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
So in the, in the last chapter of Imperial Nostalgia, you show how um, the Empire comes home, or at least Imperial thinking comes home. So mm-hmm. um, I guess something came home for England this year. Yeah. Too, too soon? Too soon? I apologize. Too soon. So how have patterns of racial othering played out in in regards to class in post-Thatcherite Britain? Well, I mean, this 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 is where I would really refer your listeners onwards to Paul Gilroy, uh, and especially actually to um, Robbie Shilliam, who I think hasn't read enough, but he's really coming into his stride now as a kind of he is great at writing about race and class in post-Thatcherite Britain. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of this is this is too huge a topic for me to really really address with anything like the justice it deserves here. Also, uh, I'm probably not the right person to do it. And to be honest, I, I'm not too pleased with that chapter in my book because it does attempt to address huge things in in space and with resources it just doesn't have. Um, what I'm interested in in my book is. Not so much, uh, not entirely the politics of race itself, if that makes sense, um, but the ways in which class and race intersect, the ways in which the the, the history of the racialization of the poor in this country, which is a very relevant history in terms of you know imperial Britain and how the historic, the kind of um, the entailments of imperial Britain's structure, contemporary Britain. Um, there's a long genealogy of ways in which uh, the gaze that's turned on uh, the industrial working poor or non-working poor or just the poor, and the reg- and you know the constituent nations of the union and on the British regions is is an essentially colonial gaze. It mm-hmm. performs the same kinds of operations on bodies. It does the same things with words. It, uh, it's based on. I'm I'm always wary of of overregging uh, analyses of the coloniality of, of power within the home nations. But mm. it is uh, it is based on a unequal distribution of the means of representation uh, that is that is very colonial, actually. Um, so what, what I was writing about in that chapter was really trying to think, you know, why why do people say where I'm from in the Northeast? or Scottish or Irish people, or Northerners, or poor people from the metropole, why are they represented in certain ways? Like, what what does this serve? How are race and class kind of smooshed together in interesting ways? And also, how does this fit into the reactionary politics I'm discussing, which often seems to suggest that the real moral authority in British politics is a semi-fantasized white voter in form in the industrialized regions such as well especially the northeast actually um who really likes the empire is super proud of the empire he doesn't want to be made ashamed for his country's history and we appeal to this imaginary left behind vote in the same way that america appeals to the rust belt so if you, if you want to understand why trump happened you have to go to like Poopsville, Ohio, where the steel mills are all rusted, you know, and, and go to the bar and talk to Dave, who's like, yeah, you know, that, he's really that angry. J, that J.D. Vance nonsense from uh, Hillbilly yeah. Energy. Which, yeah. you know, which is which is stuff that deserves a serious thought and very rarely gets it and often gets mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely ridiculous stuff. Like one of my favourite things in, in, in the book is something I quoted in that chapter that began the, the morning after the 2019 general election, when, you know, our most right-wing Tory government 
in a long, long time, uh, received a landslide and the left was absolutely crushed. Um, you know, a, a famous liberal commentator wrote in the Atlantic, it's like, well, the laid off steel workers of Redka in Teesside didn't want to hear about gender self-identification. <laughs> Which is like, you've never been to Redka, you definitely haven't asked any of them what they think, but maybe you're quite bothered about gender self-representation, right. self-identification. Right. Like, there was a way of kind of ventriloquizing uh, inadmissible uh, reactionary affects and opinions mm-hmm. through through a person just your working class that can't talk back and isn't encouraged to, but is told that it's being represented very thoroughly. Right. Um, and I, I think that's something that I think could be looked at a lot more and far better than I do in as something that is quite a post-industrial, post-imperial uh, and post-colonial uh, phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I hope that so, makes sense. No, absolutely. So in, in the words of Lenin, uh, what is to be done? Um, what, what, um, uh, how, how does one get over this imperial nostalgia? Um, I, you know, I was surprised because your conclusion is actually pretty optimistic um you you seem to uh view the, the the sort of the next generation so to speak as as actually much more comfortable with historicization and for critical historical thinking so what 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 well, what, what should Britain do with itself <laughs> i mean i mean the book was written largely out of me trying kind of trying to think through like confronting uh you know the the resurgent reactionary um, whiteness politics of our day, and 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 to be honest, like if if the news isn't somewhat good, it's very bad indeed. Um, so, I mean, ass- assuming I'll, I'm, I'll still be able to talk about this stuff in twenty years' time, something will have gone right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I say that I'm quite that I'm really impressed by quite a lot of by people who are 10 years younger than my generation uh, and, and that's I, I think I was right in that partly because I'd just been campaigning in the 2019 general election uh, six months earlier and I'd been going door to door with with young people who uh, you know um, were campaigning for a, a vaguely socialist or social democratic labor party um, in very difficult circumstances and they were just they were they were discourse literate, if that makes sense. So much of the of the kind of reactionary politics mm-hmm. that I'm addressing yeah. here rely on people on people not being able to read the media and the messages that come through that media with which they're surrounded. Everyone's got everyone's got you know several um, or any everyone white anyway in Britain and America probably has several uh, family members or friends who've just disappeared into a Facebook or WhatsApp hole and, and come back with the most startling opinions. And that's that's really accelerated in the past 18 months during the pandemic. And, um, you know, this uh, the gamble that a lot of these reactionary politics is making is they're trying very, very hard to attract, uh, to attract younger audiences, but they're still relying electorally, at least, on older generations. Um, right. And you know, I th- I, th- I think people who are, who are plugged into how discourse works are, are are quite a good antidote to this. But where this leads is uh, a bigger recommendation that I wish I'd made instead of yanking on about how much I like my friends who are, who are much younger and, and brighter faced <laughs> than me. Um, the idea that uh, the best cure for this is uh, is historiographical literacy. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that everyone should know somehow that pasts have pasts too 
and that you are in historicity and so were people who lived 100 years ago and that's a difficult thing to work out and it has no clear answers but uh but you have to know that the past is something that is part of your life now and it's contested and its contestation is something that you can't sit out you know it's uh it's it's something that you can't decide is not your business um, yeah, th- th- that that damn statue went up in 1898, and not yeah. everybody w- and not everybody was happy about it at that exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And um and and that's that's like that that basic fact, like the basic fact about when the statues of Robert E. Lee went up. That's that's the doorway to uh to really ref- reforming any anyone's kind of whole way of thinking about what the past is and means. Um, yeah. I, I, th- I think that's you know. I think I think that's the major intervention we can make. I mean, you also like, in, in like strategically, you also like, you know, as this book kind of tries to do and mostly fails. Um, we have to make a critique of how the so-called culture war works, of what its strategies are, and how it activates fantasy, how it how it creates new languages and and new ways of of thinking about things, and and how it tries to reify structures of feeling. And uh, from there, we have to try to reach the people it's designed to reach, and talk past its uh, talk past its talking heads. And like, I'm I'm not going to like I would never talk to someone like say Nigel Bigger or Bruce Gilly or any of these guys. Like, there's no point engaging with any of their points, uh, which are nominally about you know history and who did slavery really. Like, they're not talking about history. What they're talking about is who's human and who isn't and who's better. And you have to talk past them to their intended audience and explain what they're doing. So that's what I'm trying to do here. Great. Well, uh, it it sounds like maybe historians could play a role here. It does. Yeah. I mean, well, this is this is one thing that worries me. Is a little, that, little plug for my profession. But the the popular the pop the kind of market in trade history books is increasingly less dominated by. Uh, by people who might reinforce the sense that uh, that historiography is not a thing, but history is, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, um, it's mm-hmm. increasingly less reaction. It's increasingly more diverse. And that does give me, when I go into, say, Waterstones, our bookshop, and you know, I, I see what the history section shelves look like, it does look a lot better than it used to, I think. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think you've been far too self-effacing here because imperial nostalgia can play a really important role in this because it is accessible it is engaging um without um pandering or anything mm. like that and um, I, I i found it i found it to be a really great contribution cool uh, thank you so thank you so hey um we've, we've been really generous with your time and we're going a little bit long but I've got two Sorry. more questions before i let no no uh, before i let you go um first uh can you suggest two books for the listeners to read damn okay uh i can suggest uh Two for academics and two f- to give to people who aren't academics. Uh, so okay. two for academics. Wait, that's four. Uh, okay. <laughs> sorry. Okay, uh, all right, all right. <laughs> what can I say? I'm a maverick. Um, so uh, two two books. Well, I mean, you know, they're, they're for general audience as well. But the British Museums by Dan Hicks and Times Monster by Piers Satya. I mean, you know, mm, you yeah. probably have heard of all these already, but yeah. they're just yeah, fantastic absolutely. books that really kind of engage ethically with the structure of certain parts of the imperial complex, especially Satya. I mean, like that came out after I finished my book, which was heartbreaking because 
it should, you know, what's the point anymore? Um, she does this <laughs> wonderful kind of dense reading of all the different ways that historical mythologies have been mobilized uh, yeah. throughout the history of the empire, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, two, two books for a much more general audience and, you know, like young mm-hmm. people as well. Uh, empire Land by Satnam Sanghera is, uh, I mean, it's a bestseller mm-hmm. over here. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's just, a, you know, it's kind of done as a kind of, as a confrontation with this, he, he pretends to know less than he does, but he kind of walks you gently kind of through what does it mean to be a post-imperial country? How how come our culture is saturated with imperial uh, mm-hmm. language and imaginaries? And, you know, it, it gets to some really interesting conclusions and, and it's really fair-minded. It, it's it's really popular with people who are very against revisionist history. It's a, it's, it's a single book that I'd give to someone who was, who was a bit angry about statues coming down. And... <laughs> um, the other one would be, oh, do you know what? I can't think. Oh, yeah. So uh, Alex von Tunzelman's uh, Fallen Idols, 12 Statues that uh, that Changed the World. It's it's about statues that have been torn down. And it, in, it involves, includes Colston, but, you know, it also has Stalin. It has the statue of Saddam Hussein that was pulled down in 2003 in, in Baghdad and how that kind of event was created. And that's yeah. just a fascinating look at, a really accessible look at the kind of politics of memorialization, um, which yeah. I think every everyone should read. That's, I, I'll, I'll look into that. Um, in, in my own work on on colonial Vietnam, one of the things that I researched was the um, the the way in which the French put a Statue of Liberty in the center of Hanoi in the eighteen eighties because they really? had after they, after they gave us the Statue of Liberty, they had they had all these these models, right? So w- what do you do with all these extra Statues of Liberty? They well, they put ones in the Seine right by the Eiffel Tower, right? Yeah, and then they shipped them off to the Empire because, of course, you would conquer people, take everything away from them, <laughs> uh, roll up the barrel of a gun, and then talk to them about liberty. So they put they put this the Statue of Liberty right in the center of Hanoi on Ho Huang Kiam Lake, which is the the lake of a return, the return sword, which is sort of a sort of like a, a King Arthur kind of um, a folk tale about a, a fisherman who took a sword out of the lake and and liberated Vietnam from China, and then so it's it's it is a site of Vietnamese national identity, mm. and there's a pagoda right in the middle that's the pagoda of the return sword, and the French put a Statue of Liberty on top of the pagoda until it began to list. <laughs> and then they, they took it off and they put it, they stuck it over on the side of the lake. Well, guess what the first statue to come down in the August revolution of 1945 was. And the, right. the, the Vietnamese youth tore that statue down. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's uh, this, this is, this is about you, not me. Um, so, <laughs> um, but um, uh, finally, um, what are you working on now? Um, what can we hope to see from you next? Oh, uh, well, at the minute, I'm uh, hoping to write about stuff that I actually like instead of stuff I hate. And um, I'm, I'm putting together a proposal for a book about my favourite writer from Newcastle, where I'm from, uh, whose name was Jack Common, uh, 1903-1968, I think. And he was, he was a working class uh, writer who knew Orwell and became a journalist and kind of has flown beneath the radar is like not necessarily a great writer, but is a very interesting one and a very good one. And um, I'm hoping to write a short snappy book about him and about local history, the past and class regionality and, and culture in Britain over the 20th century. Great. Which doesn't sound like a short book. I appreciate, but (laughs) I'll, I'll do my best. 
Well, we look forward to that. Um, Dr. Peter Mitchell, thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Thank you. Thank, thank you, for, um, you know, for your tolerance and patience. This has been a conversation with Peter Mitchell about imperial nostalgia, how the British conquered themselves out with Manchester University Press in 2021. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.